to the Guild Chat Cafe, where we talk about all things learning, uh, brought to you by the Learning Guild. My name is Jeff Batt, and I am the program manager over at DevLearn. And today we're going to be talking to Kevin Thorne, who is the chief Nugget Head with Nugget Head Studios. Welcome, Kevin. Hello. What's going on? I'm Jeff. Nice to have you here. Now, Kevin, why don't you give us a quick introduction to who you are, kind of your background, and also what makes you passionate about learning as well? Sure. Uh, name's Kevin Thorne. Um, I'm a retired Army. Um, after the Army, uh, living under a pine tree wasn't necessarily a marketable skill, so I had to go get a real job. Um, ended up uh, going back to school, getting an IT degree, which landed me in corporate IT department. I uh, was doing that for a few years, and then that transitioned over to the training department, which then led me uh, to um, helping that company uh, implement an e-learning program, uh, element implement their first LMS. Uh, I did that for about a decade and then um, started freelancing. And I enjoyed freelancing because of the, the, the variety of types of work that I could do uh, instead of uh, corporate's always the same audience, the same sort of thing. Um, so just to exhaust my own curiosity, I started freelancing. That lasted about a year. And then uh, I ended up at that two jobs at that time and one had to go. So I left the corporate behind and started my own company. And as of April this year, will be 10 years. 10 years, and, uh, wow. Yeah, so, um, and I love it. I mean, the drive, the passion, I love um, solving learning problems. I, I love working with clients and we've got this problem. Can you help us out? Yeah, let's look at some areas and help them brainstorm an idea and then implement and design it and put it together. Um, and then I love teaching too. Uh, I teach uh, all kinds of online workshops, um, um, articulate storyline, Camtasia, uh, visual design, what we're talking about today, visual literacy. Uh, and I also teach at the university um, at the graduate level. And I'm also a doctoral student at that same university. So I love learning and I love teaching. So you're very busy is what you're saying. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, all right, Kevin. So as you mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking today about visual design and visual literacy, uh, visual language. And this is what you're going to be talking about at the Learning Solutions Conference. That is um, Learning Solutions 2022 coming up on April 20th in Orlando, Florida. And first of all, high level for someone who is brand new to this or have never heard that term of visual language, what would you say the visual language is and what does that mean? Uh, visual language is a language you already know and you use every day. Um, probably what we haven't learned is how to use that language in communicating. So to give you an example, um, when we drive back and forth to our different errands and things that we do, we identify and we visually recognize road signs and those road signs have colors and shapes and they direct us. Um, we look at milestones and different things or rally points, if, if I call them. Um, things we remember, like, you know, turn left at the big yellow sign and that go down that for about till you feel like you've went about a mile, you know, those sorts of things. That's that's at a high level. That's visual language, how we communicate visually. Um, another language that kind of ties in with that is body language. So um, if you have a teenager at home, you know that body language is probably a pretty prevalent uh, language used around the house with with teenagers, sure. uh, but but we communicate with these visual languages. So what visual literacy is, is how do I communicate 
complex problems. How do I transcend universal, international, written and spoken language to, to a single language that everybody can communicate and understand? Now, are you kind of building off of the um, what people already know? So you, you talked about like, uh, you know, the left turn signs or like a stop sign or something like that. But those are kind of common things. Those are things that are built into us, like red means stop and things like that. Sure. Are you talking about taking that same type of concept and applying it to your learning courses? Yeah, exactly. So those are what we refer to as perceived affordance, right? So based on your exposure, your experiences, your culture, it's what you've been exposed to and that's what you already know. So I don't have to teach you what a hexagon in, in the color red means. You know the message. So if I were to put that symbol or that visual in front of you, you know that means stop in your experience, in your culture. It changes internationally in different, different places. Um, so what we're, what we're doing is taking these perceived affordances and then leveraging those, adding a little bit more to do sort of a narrative or a message or a communicate, like a dialogue of sorts. Another great example is uh, the save icon. And I would argue some of our audience has probably never even used a floppy disk before, let alone seen the physical one. But yet we know that you see the image of a floppy disk, it means to save a document. So that's a perceived afford. And I don't have to tell you what that icon means because you already know what it is. And then that gets into iconology and, and you know, what, what are the different icons and they mean and, and things like that. I remember hearing a story of a teenager went to their parents and took like a floppy disk and they're like, oh, you three pit. 3D printed the save icon. <laughs> no, that's the actual floppy disk, but. So, oh, there was, there was another one I saw too. It said, uh, it's like, oh, I really love the design of these new coasters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how does that help with, um, so you're, you're talking about it. Okay. You're, you're about to work on a project and you're working with different stakeholders. Um, how does that help using this kind of visual language and, how does it help save time? I mean, I, I see sometimes a lot of us kind of reinventing the will where we feel like we have to have uh, how to navigate this course inside of every single page, but do we yeah. really? I mean, how does no. this save time? Yeah, so there's a number of things. You just, what you touched on was, um, you know, the user experience, right? Um, but then we also have user interface design. Um, and a lot of, if we're speaking specifically e-learning, um, a lot of the e-learning authoring tools come packaged with sort of an interface, and we don't really have to do anything other than, uh, you know, publish the course, and it's got its own navigation. Uh, but for somebody that's just taking on that for the first time, they may not know how to navigate that. So how do we design an interface that's intuitive? So we we look at other industries like app development and websites, and then when you go to a website, you typically don't have a pop-up that says, in order to navigate this website, let's do this and let's do that. However, there are some, if you think of the level ups, like first time, there might be a, a tool tip or a caption that comes up over the live um, buttons or the live, over here, do this, over here, you can find help, over in this area is your resources. And they do that one time, and then you can re-access that information later, uh, but you don't necessarily need it up in your face all the time. Um, so that's a that's a, a design approach. So when we're communicating that design on the front end before production, before development, we can sketch these out. So at, at a very high level, you know, think of tools like um, uh, uh, Visio and Mural and Miro and all these prototyping and these kind of brainstorming kind of design tools where we can kind of map out a high level 
um, path, a navigation path. Um, that in itself is one way to visually communicate. But then when we get into sort of an activity or an interaction or the way the uh, the way we navigate the behavior of our experience, we might have to dive in a little bit deeper. And then that's when these um, uh, concepts and these ideas between visual language come in, where I can visually put a, um, a design in front of you and I can have that conversation where instead of just a Word document that we're going to do this, this, and this, I can visually show you what this interface is going to look like. I can show you that if you interact with this element, here's the behavior behind that interaction and here's what you can expect to happen. Um, and then having that conversation, then we can have one, a, a richer conversation about what's the expectations. And then secondly, when we get to production, there's no, there's no um, misunderstanding, you know, cause we've all, we've already kind of seen it before we put it together. So that helps clear up some of those misconceptions that stakeholders might have initially oh, sure. maybe they're thinking one thing and you're thinking something else so you're saying that this visual language like this shared visual language between you and the stakeholders could help kind of clarify that and so there's no misconception is that what i'm hearing yeah that managing the expectations i think we can all can say that um, we all have these great kickoff meetings we got these great design meetings and then everybody has their own perception of what that outcome is or what the output's going to be and then we put something together we published the first alpha release, and then all of a sudden we've got all these design changes. Well, the idea of this visual sort of approach on the front end is to mitigate design choices after development. You know, obviously there's a few small changes that we'll, we'll make and edit along the way, but we don't want to have to take apart something to redesign it or rebuild it because it wasn't properly um, communicated on the front end where everybody's expectations um, are met before we get to production. Is that very similar to like a style guide? I mean, most organizations might have a style guide of, okay, this is what our brand is. Are you talking about doing this as far as, okay, this is our brand for learning and having like these visual library components or something? Exactly. Yeah, it all fits. So each project dictates, not every project needs an actual project style guide. Uh, but a lot of times we leverage the organization's branding style guide to ensure that we follow certain font guidelines and typography and and colors and the way we use the logo and things like that. That's all part of visual language because we're communicating or marketing, if you will, the company's brand in this e-learning course. So if I were to take, say, for instance, um, the Coca-Cola brand, and I used uh, a, the, the blue color out of my shirt instead of the red color of Coca-Cola, I've totally destroyed the visual community. It's like there's brain you starts misfiring because hey, that's yeah. not Coca-Cola. Well, I've never seen Coca-Cola in blue before. So following those established brands, it goes back to perceived affordance, right? It goes back to what I already know, what I've already been taught, what my experiences are, my culture. So we leverage as much as that as we can first, and then we can add on more. And then to your point, we, we start building a library of visual assets, either uh, for global universal communication or specific to each project, depending. Project so, dictates, every project dictates, you know that. So it becomes this, so... I, I would imagine that would save time. So you're not having to rethink, okay, what do we use for like uh, the save icon? What do we reuse? And it will also help with the learner. And so they're not trying to process a new interface when they're working with an e-learning course. Um, so how much time in, you know, as you've been working on different projects with this, how much time have you seen saved because a company spent time 
creating this visual language to begin with? Well, as I mentioned when we started, I've got uh, almost a decade being a, a solo independent contractor, and I could tell you story after story of projects that tried to rush into production and the development to find ourselves spending as equal amount or twice as much time on the back end, taking things apart and redesigning and missing deadlines because we didn't take the time on the front end to design. So when we talk about save time, we can't really save time. We have 100% time, right? We've got, we've got this amount of time in a project. Where we balance and manage and use that time is the, the important part. And what, what I've developed in my processes, and I can promise I don't have any I don't have any like research evidence to say, yeah, you're going to save 27% more time doing it this way. Um, so you're but not going to I, give me that stamp and guarantee no. <laughs> you're going to save 50%. No, no, I'm okay. not going to do that. <laughs> uh, but okay. I will tell you that let's say, let's, you know, for the sake of this conversation, let's say we start a project and we start designing and then uh, let's use four months and we use 25% as a month. So let's say we use the first month to design and then we spend two months developing and then we use the last month for, um, you know, testing, review and feedback and things like that. Well, what happens is a lot of times we'll get through that first month, we'll get the development. Then when we get to that fourth month, we're going back and tearing apart what we did in month two because it wasn't the the expectations weren't clearly defined, right? Yeah. The perceptions, the different perceptions were, were ex expected and didn't meet those. So what I would argue is go back, slow down, be patient, take 50%, take the first two months to design. So two things are going to happen. One, your production is going to go a lot faster because you know you have a map. It's like a blueprint. Um, you have a map, exactly what you're supposed to be building, and there's no guesswork because everybody's on board and everybody's a, a, the there's no missed perceptions. And then when we get into the review and feedback, it goes a lot smoother because all we're doing is we're changing we might have to edit some content. We might have to re-record some audio. There are things that are expected at the at the review cycles, but not redesigning something because we didn't clearly define it before we got to production. So the visual design or the visual literacy, or the visual language, um, I liken it to a blueprint, right? I liken it to you can't you can't really build a wall until you have a foundation. So you need yeah. to have the foundation first, and that's part of it. Get that all in place, get the structure, get the framework, get all of that laid out through a visual design, a visual language sort of process. And then once you have the blueprint, um, you know, I don't know, you build a house, rarely do you see an architect on a build site, right? An architect designs, that's the instructional designer, hands it off to a contractor, that's the developer, the contractor hires a bunch of subcontractors, so maybe video, voice actors, graphic designers, but the architect's done, right? Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's from a house building. If you just do the comparison, because um, a lot of us are doing everything, right? Designing and developing. Uh, but it's it, the hard part for me, anyway, it's taken me a long, I still struggle with it, is compartmentalizing what role I am at the time, what hat I'm wearing. So a lot of times I'll be in the design phase and I'll start thinking about stuff too far ahead and I have to stop myself. Well, we're not there yet. You'll get there and you'll have plenty of time to explore and play around with those ideas, but don't take your focus off on where you need to be right now and stay on track. So don't rush the process and stuff is what you're saying. Yeah, it almost yeah. makes me think of... But you can save, um, save a lot of time with it. Oh, yeah. Um, it makes me think of like even, you know, helping the instructional designer 
think through some things visually too. I mean, I, I know of experience where, I mean, they were, I was working with an instructional designer and we had a four tab interaction that they were going to work with. And they started to say, okay, well, tab one is going to be, have just two words. Tab three is going to have five words. Tab uh, four is going to have like a whole sentence or something. Um, and now if they're not thinking of it visually on page, like on the word document, it looks okay. I mean, that's just, just yeah. going to be a little bit longer. But what does that mean and how does that translate into visuals uh, for the page? So you're, thinking, yes. so you're saying having this visual literacy of, or this visual language can help you kind of think through those things before you even reach the development phase. Exactly, because you're comparing the, the content, the written, like you were saying. And I've, I have this, there's this funny thing. There's always one, right? There's, you, you might have a set of four tabs. You might have a six or seven choices. And there's always that one that wraps two lines, or there's one that's always that extra long sentence, right? So we have to manage real estate on screen. We have, we have a given aspect ratio and a given design size. And then we have to put that design inside that real estate or that available amount of space. And if we have content that's sort of an outlier, um, we can lay that out visually and say, okay, this is going to take up you know, 200 pixels wide where all of these others only take up 80 pixels. Is there something we can do here? Change this. Can we use an actionable word or some other thing you know, we can do? Uh, to rename that, or maybe add a few more words to these to kind of balance it out. But we can draw that out and kind of explain it. What then leads to some of the more complex interactions um, helps you uh, think through that and then do a quick prototype and then show them, you know, not only the visual, but also the interactive behaviors behind. Here's what happens if we do this. Here's a couple of alternate ways to do the same thing, but it looks a little bit differently. Um, And then we kind of nail that down as a model and then repurpose that model. It goes back to the save icon, right? Once you um, build a model, let's say a a tabbed interaction, um, once we get the behaviors down, um, how they display, how the buttons work, all of the behaviors, the experience, not the content, just the experience. And then once we agree on that, then what I recommend is let's, if we're going to do another one like this in this same course, we'll use the same model. Because what we're doing is we're teaching the learner how to interact with this interaction or this activity. If we redesign the activity just to change content, we have to reteach them how to behave, you know, how the, the next interaction behaves. So unless there's, unless there's added value to redesign an entire activity, then why don't we just repurpose the same model? We only have to teach the learner how to use it one time, and then I can repurpose it, you know, half a dozen times later. And we're changing the content, changing maybe the graphics and different things. But essentially, the behaviors don't change. And we see that with app design. We see that with website design. We see that in other, um, you know, on-screen or tablet, smartphone interactions. Yeah, I mean, if you look across Apple apps or something like you said, or Android apps, a lot of the same user interface uh, elements in there, a lot of the same kind of, uh, or if you're going to use an accordion, those typically are the same across the board as well. Yep. So yep. Yeah, that, that helps, number one, I think will help speed up the development, but number two, it will also help, like you're saying, with the cognitive load of the learner so they're not having to relearn uh, how to use this interaction or how to work with this e-learning course. Well, also it's smart for you as the developer or the designer too because if you're designing a new interaction or activity for a new client or a new customer and 
you get it working and all the behavior, everything's fine. You repurpose it in that project. Well, you're building your own library as well. You're building your own template library. So the next project you come up with and it calls for a similar activity, say, oh, I don't have to rebuild that. I've already built it. Let me show you. It's already a successful. So then you start building your own library. And then over time, you become more efficient in your projects. So how does that, the library, if you're working and you're saving these templates and building your visual library, how does that change? I mean, some people, I think the initial reaction is, well, I don't want to reuse the same thing over and over. Um, how would I change it from one client to another client if I'm working with several different clients? Uh, well, then we, we, then we start getting into true template design because that's what a template is, right? A template is, is, is just a uh, sort of a bare bones framework. Um, and then you skin it with different looks and feels based on the use case of that template. Um, but as you start building your library, then you can you can build. I've got a similar uh, drop-down accordions and different things that I've built. And I've skinned them such a way that I can quickly change the color theme of the overall project. And that whole interaction changes with that new color theme. So I've set it up that way. To, to, and again, it's just it's about planning and strategy and setting up your own efficient workflows. Um, a little bit outside of the visual design side, but it all kind of links and touches, you know, touches together. Um, but if you're going to do all of the design work on the front end and you want to manage the expectations so the next time you get into a next project and you have a similar conversation, you can have that same conversation. You already have a prototype built. So all the time, it, let's say it took me half a day to go through that process with you at the beginning of a project. And it works. It's successful. I've saved it off. I've got all the documentation. So six months from now, I get another project from another client. And now it only takes me an hour and a half, two hours to do the same process because half of that work was already done. And I went through that sort of process yep. of visualizing behaviors and expectations and, and the overall experience. And even if you're working within an organization, I would see, you know, that's still saving time as a learning and development group that you're not having to reinvent, reinvent the wheel every single time that when you create a new course, you already have kind of this visual library yeah. to pull from and well, that's, just reskin, basically. All of this ideas that, that I'm using now or what I'm going to be talking about at Learning Solutions is it started back in corporate. Um, when I was sitting in um, in one of those chairs in a cubicle farm, and it was just this massive demand of of my time, you know, all the time. It's 13, 14 projects any one given time. And I, it, myself and the team that I worked on, we, we knew we had the skills and we knew we can put out the quality. We just didn't have the time because of the pressure of getting things done. So we always ended up either... Uh, doing half the quality just to get meet the deadline. Um, so it, it, it really bothered me. And I thought, well, how, if, if, if we know we have the skills, we know we can do out the quality, there's nothing I can do. I can't control the time. I can't control the speed of business and the demand the business has on us, but I can control the time that we use. And that started me down this path. How can I be more efficient? And um, just like, if I can use an analogy, just like um, when you start saving for retirement, I can only afford 50 cents a month. I'll put 50 cents a month in. And then next year I can put 75 cents. Oh, I can do a dollar now. And then over the course of your life, you get to a point where you're contributing 
to that. So it's kind of that same thing, that mentality when I started thinking about this was 2005, maybe 2006, around that area. And then I would say, I need to shave 30 minutes off of this project. Where can I shave? 30? What can processes can I implement to shave 30 minutes? Well, over the course of bigger projects, when you start shaving 30 minutes here and 15 minutes there, you end up saving two, three, four hours. You save half a day. Then as you get better and more efficient at it, when a project 10 years ago might take you three months, now you can knock it out in six weeks because you've got processes and efficiencies put into place. And it all starts with the visual uh, visual storyboarding um, where um, I've collected, a, uh, and I'll show this at Learning Solutions, um, a library of visual icons that represent what certain um, screens, interactive screens would look like. What does a multiple choice question look like? What does a tabbed interaction look like visually as an icon? Um, what are these different things look like? Various documents, uh, media, all those different things. And I can use those icons now quickly. I can just drag them in um, or insert them into um, a layout. So I think, well, we're here. When they make a choice, they're going to go either here or here. If they go choice A, they're going to see a video. And then that video icon would be there. If they don't go this way, they're going to go here and they're going to listen to some audio. And that would be an audio icon. So those simple, like I say, leveraging those perceived affordances on what an audio icon looks like versus what a video icon looks like. Everybody knows what a YouTube red with a white right-facing triangle looks like, and they know what that means. You click on it, the behavior behind that click is a video starts. So I can use that same shape and design as a way to communicate, here's a video in my e-learning course. And then the same thing with an audio icon, I can use that. It's like, so if they go this way, they're going to watch a video. If they go this way, they're going to listen to audio. And I don't have to say anything. I can just put that visual in front of you and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Make this choice, I go there. And that's what I'm, that's saving time, right? That's managing those expectations and there's no misperception. So you're doing that over time and you're kind of building this. Um, maybe to do the initial investment, what would you say to somebody uh, to get their stakeholders to buy in saying, hey, we want to, this is the approach that we want to take. We want to spend a little bit of time to kind of build up the library, the visual library, and then um, we want to then start to increase it over time. What would you say to somebody in order to get that stakeholder buy-in? Um, honestly, I'd say you're already doing that. You're already in those design meetings with your subject matter experts and your stakeholders. Um, your method of, of the tools that you use in those design meetings, it will only enhance the conversation. Um, so I wouldn't, um, I don't know that it's necessary, hey, asking permission, hey, I need your buy-in to use this process. Um, I would just implement it in that process along the way and say, hey, let's, would, is this more helpful? I've put together this document, this more visual document to help explain how this activity works or how this branching scenario works. Um, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the design, the instructional design is, I've put this visual map together. Um, let's talk about this and let me know if this helps you understand the expectation of what we're going to end up doing and building when we get to production. And then again, have that same conversation. I th be honest and transparent. It's like, I think this will help us when we get to production and save us time from having to redo things is if we can map this out and make these, you know, clearly defined requirements now. Yeah. And I think that's the key is it's going to save us time. It's going to. Um, it always comes back to time. 
which time then converts to money, right? So it'll save us this amount of money, this amount of time and everything. So, all right. Well, thanks, Kevin. Um, Thanks for joining us today. And if you you want to learn more about visual language and dive deeper into the subject, make sure you check out Kevin at the Learning Solutions Conference coming up on April 20th through the 22nd in Orlando, Florida. And you can find out more about that by going to learningsolutionscon.com. That's it for our episode of Guild Chat Cafe. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the channel if you want to see more content like this. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.